Okay, we will review Jephthah because we, we still left off with a little bit of his story. But remember, Jephthah is from the other side of the Jordan in Gilead. And Jephthah, the text tells us, uh, was kicked out of his father's house because he was the son of a harlot. The, his brothers uh, kick him out. Uh, he gathers around him a group of fighting men. They become a formidable force. And when the people of Gilead are in trouble, when they are threatened by the Ammonites, they turn to Jephthah. And Jephthah says, if uh, you uh, come to me, if you're coming to me now, if you're really sincere about this, I want to be head over you. He said, you've kicked me out and, and now I want to be head over you. And they assure him that he will be. He first tries to settle problems with the Ammonites diplomatically, as we saw Sunday morning. He tries, first of all, to send them a letter to reason with them uh, that this is not your land. The Ammonites will not have it. And uh, as a result of that, uh, war takes place. The Spirit of the Lord comes on Jephthah, but he makes a vow. Lord, that if you give me victory... Whoever comes out of my house or whatever comes out of my house first, I will sacrifice them to you. The Lord does give him victory. And then the text focuses on his daughter, his only daughter, who comes out to greet him. And he does with her as he had vowed, the text says in Judges chapter 11. And so we open with Judges 12, verses 1-7. through 7. The men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. Jephthah said to them, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon. When I called you, you did not deliver me from their hand. When I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up against me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let us cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, Say now, Shibboleth. But he said Siboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan, and they fell at that time 42,000 of the Ephraimites. Jephthah judged Israel six years, then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. Now, what does this remind you of that we've encountered previously? Ephraim complaining after the battle that they didn't have a prominent enough role. 
Where'd they do that? With Gideon in Judges 8, verses 1 through 3. So this is an annoying characteristic of Ephraim. That after the battle's over, after the victory's won, they're complaining that they didn't have a big enough part in it. I, I could picture that they needed the lesson of Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. Uh, and trying to promote themselves as the head of the tribes. And the text says, Jephthah says, I did call you. Now, is this factual or is this just part of the, uh, the argument that is not really true? I, I take it that he's probably telling the truth, but we haven't gotten the backstory on all of this. He said, I called for you when I was in crisis. You didn't come to my aid and I took my life in my hand by going out and fighting the Ammonites. But Gideon gave a soft answer that turned away wrath. Gideon said, "Uh, listen, you've accomplished more than I have. Uh, You have called Oreb and Zeb. But Jephthah doesn't do that. And the Bible tells us that they uh, made it so that the Ephraimites could not cross the Jordan. After the battle, the Ephraimites are fleeing. They couldn't cross the Jordan. And they told them to pronounce Shibboleth. And this talks about an ear of grain. Or that term means an ear of grain. And uh, if they couldn't pronounce it correctly and said Shibboleth, they ended up taking their life because apparently this was something characteristic of the people of Ephraim and how they pronounced that word. Bad pronunciation can cost you your life at times. And it cost them their lives in this particular case. But this was a test given to distinguish who belonged to Ephraim and who didn't belong to Ephraim. But 42,000 from Ephraim come. You know, one of the things that we see in the book of Judges, when you look at the whole book, Judges 19 through 21, where all the tribes are going to war against Benjamin, is not really just out of the blue. Because you have seen the tribes fighting with each other throughout the book. And remember, in Gideon's case, he didn't go to war with Ephraim, but because Succoth and Penuel did not receive him, uh, he inflicted heavy losses on them, uh, even taking the lives of some from Penuel. That may mean what it that may be what it means at Succoth when he uh, hit them with briars as well. I'm not exactly sure, but but my point is that throughout the book. We're going to see Israel at war with each other. And certainly its worst manifestation is right there at the end. But what other questions do you have or comments on on this section? Anything? I just think we continue to see uh, morals and uh, standards of God declining all the way through the book. It gets worse, I think, than... than uh, In a certain way. Than, yeah. You do think, too, there would be some joy on Ephraim's part that a common enemy has been vanquished, that the Ammonites are out of the picture. 
But when we're worried, not so much about the enemies of God being defeated, but who gets the credit for the enemies of God being defeated, we're going the wrong route. In Psalm 60, excuse me, Psalm 78, a historical psalm, uh, which tells the story of Israel, there are a couple of points that he made about Ephraim rebuking Ephraim. In Psalm 78, Verse 9, the sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the day of battle. And then in verse 67, Psalm 78, verse 67, He, God, also rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. And so Ephraim wants to portray itself as the leader among the tribes, as the ones that will deliver us in times of crisis. But a lot of the Old Testament evaluation of this tribe is negative. Okay, Sarah? What tribe was Jephthah from again? Jephthah, it's not mentioned. It simply says he was from Gilead. With him, it mentions a region. It does not mention a uh, city. Justin, two sports teams are named after a region, not after a specific city or state. Could you tell me who they are? (laughs) Golden State. You know, Golden State is the whole state of California. That may be one of us thinking of the Patriots. The New England Patriots. New England Patriots is one of them. I forgot the other. But that but, but that was my point. My point is my point is that's just an identification that we make bigger than a city and a state. I know that can get us deterred, so I apologize for that. But but let's look at these minor judges uh, for just a second. Ibsen in 12.8 through 10, 12.8 through 10 is one of the minor judges. Then Elan, then Abdon. Abdon. Now, the Bible says that Ibsen was from Bethlehem. He had 30 sons, 30 daughters. Uh, He gives the 30 daughters in marriage, it says, outside. My translation supplies the word family. It probably refers to outside um, the tribe, outside the clan. Uh, Maybe they vary people from different tribes. I'm not exactly sure, but he has um, 30 sons, 30 daughters. The 30 daughters marry outside, and uh, it says he judged Israel seven years. And it says he is from Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Where is that? It's just south of Jerusalem. Okay, south of Jerusalem, if it is Bethlehem in Judah. And there is a Bethlehem in Judah. There is a Bethlehem in Zebulun as well. That's mentioned in, in Joshua 19, verse 15. What I find interesting is, is some... Uh, are dogmatic, this is Bethlehem of Judah. Some are dogmatic, this is Bethlehem of Zebulun. And neither really have proof. You know, I can remember 
hearing this point, reading this point in a track growing up, and sometimes hearing this point made in sermons, since sometimes a lot of our divisions occur not by what the Bible says, but what the Bible doesn't say. For example, we could all agree Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. The Bible says that three times. Why was the reason? Well, I've got a suggestion, and you may have another suggestion, but bottom line, what we can agree on is that he came by night. We know Ibsen is from Bethlehem, whether this is Bethlehem of Judah or Bethlehem of Zebulun, uh, we don't know beyond that definitely. I, I think it's good to suggest both possibilities and to just leave that uh, to the audience to try to figure out. But uh, he has a large family. Isn't that interesting though? After we've just read about a deliverer by the name of Jephthah who sacrificed his only daughter after he comes back victorious in a battle. And here's a man, in contrast, who has 30 sons and 30 daughters. And it's interesting that too, the last minor judge that we had read of was Jair, who also had 30 sons, who rode on 30 donkeys. So on both sides of Jephthah are people who have been blessed with enormous families. And more about that in a moment. Elan, we know so little about. He is said to be from Zebulun. So if you want to know some of your famous people from Zebulun, uh, Elon is one of them. And uh, the Bible says he judged Israel for ten years. And then you have Abdon, uh, the son of, Pi- of, of, of Hillel, the Pyrothenite. And uh, he, uh, the Bible says, has 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. And this was in the land uh, of Ephraim. Now, what strikes you though, I know it's a contrast to Jephthah, but what strikes you about these exceedingly large families in Ibsen and Abdon? What strikes you about them? They sound like kings. Yeah. Again, like we said before, we assume that they had many wives to have this many offspring. The kings of Israel were forbidden from multiplying wives in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Are they living like kings even though they're only minor judges? But I'll tell you what it does show too. It does show how enormously blessed a lot of these people are at this time of complete chaos in the land. There were some times where they had peace and they had prosperity enough to have this kind of large family. And 
uh, I'm not saying that they were spiritual giants. We don't know anything about them except these brief statements that they judged Israel in verse 8, in verse 10, or in verse 8, verse 11, in verse 13. But uh, there is some degree of prosperity and blessing, though it may have been that they were promoting themselves too much and, and uh, trying to take a position like the kings would sometimes do later. What do you see? Anything? What thoughts on these minor judges, David? Ibzan, uh, when it talks about you know bringing in from the outside, is it possible that he brought in foreign men for his daughters and foreign women for his sons? Well, it could have been. Again, we don't we don't see much of what that outside specifically refers to. Certainly, um, that is one of the problems of the book of Judges. But usually, I would say that usually when Judges says that, it just comes out and says it pretty clearly, you know, like in Judges in Judges 3 and verses 1 through 6. And so it, it may be, David, I'm not going to say that's, that's impossible, but, but it may be simply they were outside uh, the clan that, that he was a part of. So you think that's more likely? I, I, I think that it's more likely outside his tribe and his group. I think that's more, more likely. Yes. I think it's interesting, too. They're not said to, to judge or deliver anybody. Yes, it isn't. They aren't said to save Israel. And no, that, that phrase is never used in any of those passages, is it? You know, I, I, I say that. Let me. But, but, they, but is, is that correct, first of all? They're not said to save. I didn't see it. Okay, just to judge. Going back to your question, David, though, I, I think about if, if If you are right, that may be just a subtle way to state. A corruption in this time. So, so that may be that may be right. Though sometimes the Bible has just explicitly said this. Ryan, um, yeah, I think you see this starting all the way back with uh, Gideon. Um, you know, they say that they want to make him a king. He says, "Oh no, no, you know, I'm not going to be a king, but I'll tax you and have a bunch of wives and yeah. have an illegitimate son that I name my father as my king." Yeah, 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 um, yes. So, you know, he, he talks a good talk, but then by the time he gets to Jephthah, Jephthah is just you know very plain. I want power. Yeah, you know, yes, that's right, that's right. And um, we know that power can be intoxicating, and power can be corrupting, and it's hard for a person to resist those kind of urges. But I think what Ryan says correct. You see it from Gideon. You see it uh, in. Uh, these minor judges even at, along with Jephthah. So good point. Sarah? And another thing that doesn't mention is that they that they were that they had been oppressed by a foreign nation or anything like that. that they weren't delivered militarily, they weren't mm-hmm. oppressed necessarily. And yeah. so I don't know if I'm trying to think of if the, minor, the other minor judges. Well, Shamgar, of course, in 331, who was his enemy? The Philistines. I mentioned that because we're about to get them. 
But I, I think it's also said of Tola in 10.1 that he saved Israel. So two of the six minor judges, we've now, in, we've now been introduced to all of them. Two of the six minor judges, it is said that they saved Israel or delivered them militarily. But of four, it is not specifically said. Okay. Samson is an exciting story. Uh, he's not necessarily an admirable character, but he is an exciting story. And I can remember um, a sixth grade um, social studies teacher at school asked us to write uh, just a couple of paragraphs. This was an in-class assignment, as I remember, on if we could be anybody in human history, who would we be? And... Um, being the spiritual giant that I was in the sixth grade, I picked Samson. I, I'm at least glad to know that I knew the story of Samson enough to tell it uh, in the sixth grade. Uh, but he's not necessarily a character for our admiration. Uh, that, But I want you to listen closely to the story here and what we're going to read in verses 1 through 7. And what's missing here that we've grown to expect? Judges 13. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor to eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his birth. To, excuse me. From the womb to the day of his death. Now, the Philistine. We have seen the Philistines, as we just mentioned a moment ago, in 331. Shamgar killed uh, 600 Philistines with an ox goat, I believe it was. Then we have seen them mentioned in 10 verses 6 and 7. The people became wicked, and when they sinned and did evil, the Ammonites oppressed them on uh, this flank the Ammonites and, and we see Jephthah battling with them. The Philistines who would have been near the Mediterranean Sea are going to afflict Israel in, in this area. So it's a two-pronged thing. And we have seen that God uses Jephthah 
to bring deliverance from the Ammonites. Now, God is going to use Samson in this conflict with the Philistines. But, as we look at this account, what is our familiar cycle that we have seen? We see it in verse 1. The sons of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They sinned in 13.1. They do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then, the Bible says, the Lord gave them. The Lord gave them. The same word gave, by the way, that's used in 13.1, was used in 12.3 to talk about God giving the Ammonites into Jephthah's hand. So just as God gave the enemy into the hands of his people, now God gives his people into the hands of the enemy. The Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And the Bible tells us of God beginning to work with a deliverer, Samson. The amazing thing is there's no other deliverer in the book of Judges who is called before their birth like this. Uh, but here he is going to, uh, in verse 5, it uses the expression, deliver Israel. So the Lord is raising up a deliverer. And that word deliver in verse 5 is our word for save. Part of Isaiah's name, part of Hosea's name, part of Joshua's name. What is missing from our cycle. Crying out to the Lord. The, we have seen this so frequently that the people cry out to the Lord and it is not there. It is not there. It is not present. I, I, I circle it not to emphasize its importance in this account, but to emphasize its absence in this account. And it seems like Israel has become content with Philistine rule. Now, I have more to go on than simply its absence here. Look at 1511. In 1511, 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Atam and said to Samson, Do you not know the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you've done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. We're content with this. Some have suggested the Philistine, Philistine threat was so dangerous because some of the time the Philistines are just determined here to live along the coast and they're intermingling with the Israelites and the Israelites don't even recognize that it's a threat to their whole national identity. And they're content with the Philistines being here. The Philistines may not have been warlike until Samson forces the issue with them. I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure of that. It does say that they oppressed them 40 years. So there may have been some of this. But it does seem like Israel was content with all of this. Now, I also want you to notice this. Well, let me ask it. Compare 
the words the angel says to Samson's mother, who's never named in the text, but who does come off in some ways as a as a good woman. Um, look at how how would you compare what the angel says to her in verses five, three through five with what she says in verse seven. Okay, she gives a lot of the details that are given before, but one thing she does not mention, she does not mention what he said in 13.5 that he will begin to deliver Israel from the Philistine. Doesn't mention that. Why doesn't she mention that? That's a pretty big deal. Why? Again, maybe it goes back to the, they weren't asking for deliverance. God through Samson, understand what I'm saying. God through Samson is in a sense picking a fight with these Philistines who are going to be such a threat if they are allowed to peacefully interact with Israel. And uh, she doesn't even mention this. So compare 13.5 and 13.7. Now, what does it mean to you that he will begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines? What may that hint at? That is just the beginning. Oh, I'm sorry, did I... No, go ahead. Go ahead. That is just the beginning of their deliverance. Yeah, it's not, he's not going to accomplish everything he's been called to. He's not going to accomplish it all. He's going to begin to deliver Israel. But Manoah's wife is barren. She is barren. This word is used 12 times in the Old Testament. A couple of them right here in Judges 13 verse 2 and 3 but a couple of other times it's used. Genesis 11 verse 30. Who could that be? That was Barak. Okay. Sarai. Then Genesis 25 and verse 21. Who would that be? That's Rebecca. It's Rebecca. But in Genesis 29 Verse 31. Here's your chance, people. Who is that? Rachel. Rachel. Okay. So, man, looking at the history of the book of Genesis, this is the same kind of thing said about Sarah, same kind of thing said about Rebecca, same kind of thing said about Rachel. Is God about to make another giant step? in the deliverance of His people. And and isn't it interesting? God is working to deliver His people even when they don't feel oppressed. And even when they're not crying out for it. If that is not a picture of God's mercy, that God delivers us when we're perfectly content to be servants. So, that is a key thing. Now, 
The word barren's not used. But where can you think of another couple of people who did not have children and who did have children? The same kind of idea. Who would they be? Zachariah and Elizabeth. Okay. Zacharias and Elizabeth in Luke 1. And um, they are going to have John the Baptist. Who else? Hannah. Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. And I think in a way, all these events, and I know this wasn't the exact same situation. It's not that she, she had not had children before, but she was very young probably. It all foreshadows the virgin birth of Jesus, that God gives these children to these women who were unable to have children, these families unable to have them, it foreshadows the fact that he would give a child to a woman who had never been with a man at all. And um, now, the Nazarite vow. For those of you who were with us in the book of Numbers, do you remember what were the three big things stated in number 6, 1 through 21, about a Nazarite vow? What is it? And I may misspell that. I think that's right. But what are the three things that are focused on in that text? Sarah? No grapes. No grapes. And it's not just wine, but you can't have grapes, you can't have raisins, you can't have anything from the grapevine. No grapes, David? Uh, don't cut the hair. Okay, do not cut their hair. And what else? Don't Anyone? Touch a dead body. Do not touch a dead body. So all of those things are stressed in number 6, verses 1 through 21. What is added to that in the angel's words to, uh, to Manoah's wife here? What, what's added to that, Sarah? That it's going to be, it's a, it's a lifelong vow. Okay. From the beginning to the end. And at least while she's pregnant, she also has to go with the no grapes. Okay, okay, that's right. Well, that, that's really, that's a good answer to my next question. Okay, <laughs> but the thing here that I was particularly hitting at, Brad, you may have it. No unclean. Yeah, not to eat, as far as another stipulation, not to eat anything unclean. Not to eat anything unclean. Uh, you see that stressed in verse 4, in verse 7, and in verse 14. Now, would that have been assumed in this? Would that have been assumed? Yeah, I think that probably was assumed. But here, maybe things are you can't assume it. You've got to state it. But, but Sarah made another point that's very good. There are four things here. Four things that are different about this Nazarite vow in Samson's case. Uh, three, four things different about this Nazarite vow. What's one, Sarah? 
Okay, it is lifelong. When you look in number six, it was usually temporary. It was usually a temporary vow. And we're even given instructions in number six. Like if someone, if you have a Nazarite vow and, and somebody dies right beside you and, and they fall on you, what do you do? You shave your head and you offer sacrifice and you start over again. And, and you keep the vow again. But it was usually a temporary, it was usually a temporary vow. Here it is a lifetime vow. What else was the difference, David? Usually a person chose to, become, to take that vow for a period of time. Okay. Samson was told, you will do this. Okay. Here it was commanded, and I'm trying to be consistent, that this is what's different about it, and this is the normal situation. But usually, as number six says, it was voluntary. Uh, uh, it was voluntary. Voluntary. Um, and um, you know, people took, and by the way, this was one thing, it was men or women who could take a Nazarite vow. It wasn't limited to men in this respect. Um, and uh, something else, we could, have, we, could, we could also put the, uh, the unclean food part with this. It could, it could fit here as well. But one other thing at least I thought of that was, that was different is, and this Sarah has already mentioned in fact, this kind of applies even in conception. That it's pretty strong argument that the unborn child is a human being. Um, and you know something? We all know that. How many commercials do you see where they advertise some medicine? And I don't know why any of these medicines would advertise on television because they give as much time criticizing their medicine <laughs> as they do trying to sell their medicine. But over and over you will hear this. If it harms you or your unborn child. We all know that, don't we? Just some situations we choose to overlook it. But these are things that are different about Samson's Nazarite vow in this particular case. Sarah? So, was Samson told not to eat anything unclean or was it Mrs. Manila who was told not to eat? Well, I, I just take it from the fact we don't see this command being given separately to Samson. Mm -hmm. But I take it that these same principles that applied to her in conception would have applied to him. But th that is an inference on my part. Yes. Oh, Micah? Could anybody eat anything unclean? They were not supposed to. Okay. Now, there were some situations, though, where the penalty is very mild, like if you ate something unclean, you just washed your clothes and you were unclean to evening. I think the Bible knows that sometimes in those situations that will happen. There are some kinds that are more severe than others, but there are some kinds that were very mild. So it wasn't it wasn't necessary. I don't know that it was necessarily a sin to eat anything unclean, but you would have expected a Nazarite 
who's already concerned for purity to be very concerned about that. Nazarites are only mentioned a few times in the Old Testament. And um, they're mentioned continually in number 6, of course. But one of the passages is Amos 2, verses 10 and 11. And God talks about the blessings I gave to Israel. I gave you prophets. I gave you Nazarites. And your prophets, you said, do not prophesy. And to your Nazarites, you said, drink wine. In other words, violate your vow. Now, somebody also was saying something when Mike... Did you mean to say that it's not a sin to eat something unclean? I'm I'm just not sure that it was a sin, but you were regarded as unclean. Uncleanness is not always a perfect picture of sinfulness. Um, Because in the normal course of a life, you're going to be unclean. Um, So... Maybe I shouldn't, maybe I need to go back and think about that, but I am, I, I was stick to the point about uncleanness not being, um, not being itself a sin. And um, the penalties attached to it were very minor compared to some things. Now, if somebody is trying to get you to do it to deny your faith, like we were talking about just a few minutes ago in studying Acts 11, Isaiah was there, Roman was there, um, th- that would probably be a kind of different circumstance. But maybe I should have thought through that, and maybe I still need to think through that. So well, just pretend you didn't hear that. Well, not all uncleanness was sinful. Yes, yes. Women were unclean during sure. the monthly cycle. Yes, so. yes. That was, this would be something that would be more voluntary, though. So, but, yeah, we could, we could probably get deterred on that question. And it's not that that's not a good question. But let's, let's look at Manoah's response to this in verse 8. Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent to come to, come to us again that we may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. God listened to the voice of Manoah. The angel of the Lord came again to the woman <coughs> as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now then, uh, now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I had said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, or drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I have commanded her. So nothing new. Manoah prays the man of God to come back. He comes back, says, tell us what you would say. He emphasizes what he has already said and says, tell her not to do this. Verse, verse 15. Let me ask you as we read this, what does this remind you of that we've studied before? Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, 
I will not eat your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why did you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord. And he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And when Manoah and his wife saw it, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah or his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear these things like this at this time. So, please let us detain you that we may offer a goat. The time he says that in verse 15, he doesn't even know this is an angel. Verse 16. What is your name? The question is not asked, answered directly. It says your name is wonderful. But he brings the young goat. He brings the grain offering. He offers it on the rock. The angel goes up in the fire. What does that remind you of that we've seen in the book? Gideon. Gideon. In Gideon's case, remember what happens. The angel touches the sacrifice with his staff and it's all consumed. But it's the same kind of account that we see with Gideon. God is manifesting His presence among these people. And just as Judges 6 records, remember when Gideon sees that vision, um, he says, Alas, I have seen the Lord face to face. And um, then he builds an altar because uh, called the Lord is Peace, uh, commemorating that he saw the Lord, and yet the Lord didn't take his life the same kind of thing here. Manoah and his wife realizes this is the angel of the Lord and they are overwhelmed with being in his presence and said we will surely die. But his wife said if, if the Lord intended to kill us would he have made these kind of promises to us? Which is very logical. But I do think that shows us the sense of awe and reverence they had at the presence of God. I don't, I don't think it's easy to try to, some try to act like the angel of the Lord they know is the Lord Himself or Jesus. And I just, I don't know that. Some passages the angel speaks for the Lord, but some passages the prophets do too. But even seeing an angel was such an overwhelming thought that they considered 
they, they thought they would die. Never let us lose that sense of all because we have been forgiven, because we have been saved, because we have joy in His presence. Never let us lose that sin of awe and reverence. They're not contradictory. You don't see that in the Bible. They're, they're mentioned many times in the same context. What, what other thoughts do you all have? What other ideas? I, I just keep getting a picture of what Samson was supposed to be and then like what he goes and does yes I mean this didn't happen but I see him sitting in the barber chair with a glass of wine a cigar with his feet propped up on a bearskin rug or something you know just completely missing everything else and and I'll tell you something else when you say it think about and I know I'm not saying I'm not trying to defend everything about this person but Samson has more benefits in his upbringing than Jephthah did. I mean, Jephthah's kicked out of his father's house. Jephthah really doesn't have a home. Jephthah doesn't... I mean, Jephthah makes some of his own problems. But Samson is brought up in what looks like a somewhat stable home here where the parents have some kind of grasp of God. I'm not... I'm not uh, I'm trying to, to make them perfect. We don't know all of their details, but they were concerned enough about Samson to think, Samson, you, you shouldn't be marrying one of these Philistine women. And um, so, uh, but, 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 but Samson is given a lot of blessings by God, and he is going to be, as Sarah was saying, very cavalier in his treatment of others and his not appreciating his own gifts but kind of using them to his own advantage. Let's pick up with his birth in 1324 on Sunday, Lord willing. We can at least get through chapter 14 and uh, we can see how far we can get into 15 because 14 and 15 are very connected with the Tim Knight woman. But uh, Samson's story will certainly keep us on the edge of our seat.